Hello and welcome to a remote episode of the Voiro podcast where we do a weekend review of the things we heard, overheard, listened to and watched in the world of media, monetization, ad tech and the internet at large. I'm Anand and with me is Kavita Shinoy, founder and CEO of Voiro. Kavita, what's it like to be in Singapore? I love it. I love the fact that we've caught an 8 p.m. flight from Bangalore come here and landed up at 3:30 p.m. we were out of the airport at 4 a.m. with our bags in a cab so smooth loved yeah. it love being in singapore and i'm looking forward to a lovely 6 or 8 days how how long are we here for we have we have for 6 days and i had the most chatty cab driver this morning and it was it was a fascinating ride from the airport nice um all right so the big news across the world uh, of of silicon silicon valley tech and advertising over the last week has been the fact that sheryl sandberg is moving on from facebook um, a yeah. lot of narratives around everything she's done everything she's been a part of at facebook um as well as everything she has seen facebook go through in the last 4 to 5 years both good and bad and i know kavita you've been following sheryl's career for many many years now what's yeah. your take on on all of this One is, I think, it's about time that she quit. It's a double-edged sword what uh, Sheryl Sandberg has done at Facebook. A lot of stuff that Facebook did so far, I don't think they could have achieved without her. On one hand, she started this entire lean-in movement. I remember reading this book when it came out. It was so inspiring, and she's one of those perfect leaders, right? Including her demeanor, the way she talks, the clarity of her vocabulary. the way she delivers everything it's it's kind of sticks in your mind and her writing is similar and so i read that book when i really was at crossroads in my career as well two little kids trying to figure out my life this was pre voiro and i remember running across to my neighbor's house and saying you got to read this book and i wanted to be part of whatever lean in chapter there was and i was lapping it all up i still stand by the fact that i think she's done something fantastic by talking about women uh bringing them into the boardroom and making sure that we're actually leaning in and talking about the things that you re- require to sort of get yourself going on the other side it's a bit disappointing to note that there's so much that happened in facebook that she could have stopped avoided i guess uh kind of targeting for ads the stuff that happened on her watch i mean you know as a leader at that at that at that stage i don't know how much of uh how much of the damage she could have controlled but she did her best. Yeah. Um I think that she's going to do a combination of like we were discussing at the airport yesterday funding and foundation. Mm-hmm. So she's going to by default at some point be in some kind of a funding um role and I think she's going to use the foundation to be far more available to the world far more vocal and uh, do a lot more good than she has um I mean she's done a lot a lot of good. I mean mm-hmm. she'll do more good I guess yeah. in the next decade. Yeah, I would be excited to see what she does next. Um, I, you know, as much as we are where we are in the world of of tech, the internet, and the transition to Web three, I'm still very fascinated by Facebook's journey and how culturally culturally relevant it has become. I remember watching the Social Network, the movie. I remember getting my first Facebook account back in two thousand six, two thousand seven. And remember, I, my, were you the kind who migrated their Orkut stuff to Facebook? I I didn't. I just, oh my God, I did that. Scratch. Deny <laughs> my age. <laughs> But I would have, I would have never imagined 
that Facebook will become so culturally significant today. Yeah. And I think I'm very excited to see what Cheryl would do next, given the wealth of experience she has. And she's seen this journey from the inside out. So I'm looking forward to see what she does next. Yeah. This week also had Ad Monsters, their um, ops event in New York. And we were listening to a whole bunch of stuff that's happening with their live tweeting. And I think one of the things that really struck out and stuck out for me uh, was this concept of uh, brand safety and contextual blind spots. They had this panel, which Ad Exchanger wrote about as well, uh, where they had Vice and WebMD on it. And they had the Global Director of Audience Insights, uh, Ryan Simone at, from Vice, and they had um, Cheryl Ying from uh, WebMD. And they were basically talking about this broad-based spectrum of keywords that block out advertisers from against their content because they could be covering topics like breasts or sex and drugs. And Vice users actively seek out controversial content. It isn't wrong or inciting content. It is just controversial and it's an opinion and it's not wrong. And advertisers shouldn't shy away from advertising against it. Uh, similarly, for WebMD, what if I was reading an article about breast cancer? It's, mm -hmm. it's, not, it's not pornographic in any way. Mm -hmm. So having advertisers shy away from this and have broad-based keywords in, in the name of brand safety can also hurt a lot of publishers, which they are also standing up against. And they have teams of people to talk to public, to talk to advertisers to minimize these automated block lists. So there's a lot of work that's happening, but you know this is all towards this whole concept of deprecation of cookies. It has to go because it's a lot of stuff that's getting hard coded in the way work gets done, the way targeting gets done, and uh, the combination of first party data, uh, you know, heavy uh, collaboration between advertisers and publishers. I feel like. We need to move forward in the way we look at contextual advertising. Yeah, yeah. I, I I have a throwback example that I that suddenly occurred to me, which is I remember back in the late nineties, um, the Super Bowl hit its thirtieth edition, and I was in high school and I was in a uh, I was in some quiz where they had this question which said there is this global event going on whose website has just been shut down, and it was it was because it was Super Bowl XXX. <laughs> and they were having huge issues trying to get the website up and running at the time. I remember, at least that's what we heard. Oh man! Um, I wonder how this is going to pan out in India. I mean, in terms of keywords and blocking and contextual blocking, we have so many languages, and it's predominantly video. I don't know. I mean, it's going to be really, really interesting to see how this whole thing pans out, or does India really even care at this point in time? Is another big yeah. question. Yeah. But there's a lot of stuff that's blowing up in India this weekend especially around IPL. Um, yes, we are two days away from, uh, I think, two days away from the bid. I'm not sure if the results will be announced on the same day, but... You know what? I thought it was like, I thought it was like one of those... I hope so. Um, but all eyes are on June 12th. And the reason for that is because the IPL, the bidding for the IPL rights for the next five years is going to take place. I remember where we were all sitting during the last bid and all of our jaws dropped when we heard it was 2. Seven billion dollars, fifteen, sixteen thousand crore for the previous bid. We did um, a webinar about ten days ago, which we're going to plug in the description about um, live sport and the business of streaming and monetizing live sport. And I'm very excited to see what comes out of of these rights because of the number of 
organizations that seem to be in the race for it. You have the Reliance Viacom group, you have Hotstar, you have uh, the Z Sony group, uh, possibly Amazon, possibly Facebook. Um, and one of the things I noticed this year is that there are also newer types of rights. And I know we were asking Ankur during our Bright Talk about whether or not we'll see metaverse rights at some point. I don't think we have that just yet. But we have um, uh, unbundled rights. We have non-exclusive rights. So I wouldn't be surprised if we end up with a group of different organizations that pick up different types of rights. But I'm excited about what this means for fans because as always, we are going to be entertained by several companies who are going to woo us in different directions. And that's always a fun place for us to be in. And as an organization that builds technology for this industry and that has worked very closely with the IPL, I'd be excited to see who picked this up and what they're going to do with it to continue to entertain fans. Yeah. Um, you know, in all in all content rights, um, legalese, there is this one line that talks that names every single part of uh, or part and place where this content can be used, from geography to space to to the to the to to you know to the type of content, etc. And I remember when there was when there was this TV digital transition, digital on a lot of paperwork was missed out. So yeah. at that point in time, it was a loophole. So when you talk about the metaverse, although it is digital. I don't know whether it's going to be treated as a completely new environment altogether. Yeah. Uh, and so it'll be interesting to see what happens. Yeah, absolutely. I'm hoping by the time we roll around to our next podcast, we'll have some news to share about. I'm excited. Or which companies have picked up the rights and, and what that means for us for the next five years and what we can possibly expect them to do with the rights over and above just streaming it. Very true. Um, I listened to a very interesting podcast earlier this week, which is actually about a month or two old, I'm going to admit. Um, I came around to listening to it this week. It's a podcast called Slaves to the Algo, which is run by the CEO of Crayon Data, a Singapore-based company. And they had on Unmish Parthasarthi, who is an, uh, an old friend of Moiro's and a very well-known sport and cricket enthusiast. And he's built his entire career, worked for ESPN, has been with the ICC, he now runs Picture Board Partners. And it was a beautiful episode that touched upon data, AI, and its use in sport. And it was a two-part episode. The first one was data, AI, and the psychology of sport. And the second one was data, AI, and the business of sport. And I loved a couple of points that Unmish made. I would really encourage everyone to listen to that conversation. But on the field, there's plenty of uses for data and AI. Everything from player scouting to player improvement and development to things like DRS and, and on-field. Um, uh, What's DRS? DRS is the technology that's used in cricket to um, basically get technology to uh, adjudicate uh, uh, an umpire. Or when, you, or when you see all the various, the, the, the where the, the ball went and whether the wickets came out and all of the trajectories. It used to be called Hawkeye, which I think is still what it's called in tennis. Oh, okay. But um, multiple sports have found ways to adopt computer vision which mm -hmm. Unmish tables is one of his big bets in sport to enhance various aspects of on-field uh, decision-making. Um, coming to the business of sport and streaming and broadcasting, Unmish had a very interesting point, which is that over the last 20, 25 years, various large sports across the world have largely had to sit back and try and engage their consumers. But broadcasting was the way to do it. 
and today we're going through this transition from engaging fans to including fans and everything that we're going to see in the next 10 15 years is going to focus more and more and more on fan inclusion and specifically he talks about how fans today are largely of three types there is the consumer of the sport the customer of the sport product and services that come with the sport and then there are citizens of the sport who kind of lean back and the ability for any sport to figure out how to engage fans who are already consumers of the sport and how to create inclusive experiences for fans of the future is basically what's at the same time exciting and necessary for sports leagues streaming platforms to get right um simply because everything is now um uh, an elective nothing is mandatory unmesh even goes to so far as to say that today education is not mandatory so the fact that we have so much choice which is something we talk about over and over again means that to include fans you have to really offer something that drives fan inclusivity um and i suspect that we'll see a lot of the technology trends of the next decade kind of play in that direction very interesting you were also talking about how uh, duke university made a very interesting hire recently yes um joe pompliano who writes uh, a interesting newsletter called hardlock talked about the fact that duke has hired rachel baker who's an ex nike executive and she used to work with the nba as their general manager to oversee their nil partnerships that's name image and likeness partnerships and efforts and this ties back to something umni unmish was talking about which is the rise of the player publisher today with the power of platforms like tiktok and short video and instagram and reels and so it's interesting to see duke make a senior level hire to focus on nil because it helps uh, college players unlock a lot of revenue potential for themselves while they are in college as well as maybe beyond and give them a sustainable way to tap into that even if they don't go professionally um the ability and that's and that's in contrast to what halji is saying on yes. tiktok yes yes i know you were talking about what's going on with tiktok in the world of music marketing do you see this as a parallel or do you see this as an interesting contradiction it's an interesting contradiction right where you know the fact that there are two creative sets of people trying to get themselves onto social media and to get themselves popular and trying to milk that 15 minutes of fame that they have and what you were talking about in unmesh's podcast you're you're just put a tipping point away from good to great right in terms of how you get there so you just have to keep figuring out what that tipping point is and a lot of people just walk away without actually having achieved that greatness but you there's a lot of money to be made and a lot of there's a lot of commercial gain even when you are good if not the greatest mm-hmm. and with halsey saying that she's tired and wanting the fact that you know and complaining about the fact that her album producers are not allowing her to release it because they she doesn't have a tiktok hook and so on and so forth and while these sports guys are trying every trick in the book to cash in on whatever goodness they have going at that point in time and they are not tired of it yeah. it's such a contradiction with two talented creative sets of people that one part is flourishing and saying oh my god i've had enough of this and the other one is like let me in and trying to break that door down yep yeah yep um i wanted to finish up with um strategy's latest article by ben thompson which is a very long and interesting interview with michael nathanson who's one of the co-founders of moffit nathanson the the research group 
who talked about how he has been a netflix skeptic for many many years and he put down some interesting points which i think play in very um seamlessly with many of the things we discuss on on this podcast and in our airwaves the first one is he said that he believes success is not proportional to spend now it sounds very simple but he said that while netflix has been both a blessing and a curse to the entire streaming industry it was built on this model that success of the company is directly proportional to how much you spend on content and while this is good and it unlocks a new door he believes michael believes that a lot of traditional media organizations have shown that you need multiple narratives you need multiple vehicles to carry forward that success and just the fact that you're spending a lot of money on it is not enough it might be necessary but it's not sufficient the second point is something we discussed last week when we were talking about uh, warner brother uh, wbd where he said there is significant value in libraries the friends the sitcoms the offices of the world that can be both filler content as well as attract new audiences but it gives people a reason to stay beyond the originals that you're investing in which brings him to his third point which is he said i hate to say this but original content is at the end of the day a roll of a dice it may not always succeed you don't know what it's going to be till it actually it's like it's like viral content it could yeah. happen you might be able to give it a high probability of happening but it's still a roll of a dice and i think this is where he's wearing his sort of market analyst hat where he's saying the valuation of a company cannot depend on the roll of a dice um the fourth point which is something that we've discussed in a very different context which is uber and airbnb is the fact that he said businesses that work very well in the us might not work elsewhere mm. and if you have to move to other geographies where you realize you have to start making high quality original regional content you lose economies of scale what you get with things like libraries and multiple narratives and vehicles is you can actually make global plays and benefit from the economies of scale but having to come to india and make something like even something as big as sacred games for example is still a, a local play where you will not be able to benefit from any economies of scale and so you was talking about how businesses that work in the us don't realize that a lot of them don't realize that that exact model might not scale globally it, to localize it works differently for us from a small country right we know the the us is the mecca of scale in yeah. general right yeah. get there they're yeah. all the same language yeah. they're hyper capita you're able to crack one door open and you're able to get them all like yeah. you know falling dominoes yeah. so strange yeah michael also talks about the beauty of bundles and god it's like we're going back in time these bundles yeah. those those tokens <laughs> are you i don't understand it's like can like like you know collecting bottle caps yeah yeah it's yeah, ridiculous yeah, yeah. Uh, i know I, i read the article that you shared about that and i i think i think there's there's a lot that's happening today that's reminiscent of what happened 40 years ago and i know rohan from our team shared a bcg article about how streaming is looking a lot like linear did 40 to 50 years ago yeah and even what you're talking about right the nil which is there again name name like, image likeness yeah name image and likeness and i asked you what do you mean by likeness if not image and you said you know like if you have a game and you can have somebody who looks like you and i didn't know that previously in cricket games somebody who looked like tendulkar was called what tendahar tendahar yeah. <laughs> so tendulkar can be called a tendulkar yeah. as an avatar and you actually get paid royalty 
for that likeness. And that's pretty much a software computer vision version of, uh, you know, of, of a merchandising, right? From like you have a little doll of yourself. So yeah. that's basically what it is. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So and we're talking my... about, sorry, we're talking about tokens yes. uh, the other day and how yeah. you could, you could, somebody would give you digital tokens. This was in the concept of Web3 and and, mm -hmm. and blockchain and whatnot, but these tokens and you could go and exchange these tokens for things in real life like food and, and any kind of uh, concessions that you get in that event, which I thought was so silly because you can buy a coupon. Like, what's the big deal? Why do you have to like overcomplicate this whole thing? Yeah. So I'm, I'm not a skeptic. I'm just questioning at this point in time. I'm just questioning. I just want to know more. That's about it. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. So back to your, back to your, uh, article. Michael, Michael makes, I mean, it's, it's, it goes on and on. Um, but, um, he's talking about bundling, you said. Yeah. On the topic of bundling, he was, he again goes back to Netflix being a blessing and a curse. So he says, you know, streaming has shown that something is possible in, in that line of business. But if you start unbundling your content bundles and shipping individual pieces of content towards a streaming platform, you lose out on the fact that bundles have a level of stickiness to it. Sometimes users just want to put something on and they're okay to have access to an entire bundle. Sure. Um, and that along with the mathematics of content accounting uh, make for another interesting set of arguments where I, I, I remember reading back in 2016 that 2017 that Netflix was known for spending a lot of money on original content. I think it was 10 billion at the time and everyone's jaws dropped and today it's the 20 billion, 70 yeah. billion. But a lot of the accounting practices around content spend amortization is something that Netflix was very innovative about about three or four years ago, but Michael comes back and says, given the amount of content that we have access to today, that practice is fundamentally flawed. Uh, I'm not an accounting expert, so I'm not going to get into this, but Michael's broad argument is you might amortize the cost or the cash that you've spent on programming over the course of, let's say, five years. But today, consumers' attention span is getting shorter and shorter and shorter. Even as stranger things, will have a burst of viewership for a matter of a few weeks and then it will die down. So the fact that the time period across which you're amortizing your spend is today so far away from the uh, attention that is being garnered by that piece of content means that valuations based on these practices are something that needs to be revisited. And the last point he makes is about theatrical releases. And I know we talked about Top Gun last week and how you were, I'm not sure how many times you've seen it since then. Gushing, I was gushing. <laughs> Yeah. It. I still I still will, but I won't waste people's time now. <laughs> but, but Michael's point is that if you skip theatrical releases and do the, the whole day and date release or, or release directly on streaming, A, you miss the chance to make a serious quantum of revenue from the box office. But B, if your content doesn't take off and he talks about how it's still a roll of the dice at the end of the day, you go straight from zero to becoming filler content on some streaming platform. You're not going to be the main event anywhere. And that is suboptimal from a revenue standpoint. Very interesting. Yeah. I mean, there are always two sides to any argument, right? There are naysayers of streaming. And like and like he rightly said, Netflix did open up a whole, whole new world for all of us, from consumers as well as from a business perspective. And speaking about accounting, I was listening to um, Pivot, the other day and Kara Swisher and uh, Scott Gallo were talking to a CPA who has classes and teaches 
on um, TikTok. Hmm. Her name is Crystal Todd and she has this huge following and she's like teaching accounting in a very different way. And the thing is that it got me thinking about the concept of education and online education. And I know I hated it when my kids were stuck at home during the pandemic and, you know, everything was online. Um, it wasn't scalable because they were trying a classroom scenario through an online medium. But you and I, you know, we do agree on the fact that the future of education, not just academic education, not just like schooling, but general education is online because it's so easy to access. And in the context of India, if you think about it, where everybody knows the next billion are going to come online. And you think of all these short video content players like Josh, Takatak, Moj, all of these players who are who have proliferated specifically in the tier two, tier three cities and the rural areas and have a lot of people who have downloaded these apps and are interacting on these apps and are uploading their own content right now. It's all around entertainment and comedy and whatnot and less about commerce and education. It's a huge vehicle and extremely powerful, uh, it's an extremely powerful vehicle for us to be able to use it to actually uh, reskill, upskill our the youth of India, right? And I feel like there is a huge opportunity for us over there uh, as an, as a country. And I and I think that while accounting is a great thing and education of that stature, it's very first world. Yeah. I think even in India, we can do so much more in terms of just being able to train people, and you know they can figure out employment from there. There's so much you can do with these mediums. Yep. Yep. All right. Um, thank you so much to everyone listening in. We are in Singapore starting today for uh, a week and we have a bunch of meetings lined up with uh, some very interesting people in the industry and we are very excited to be here and we are looking forward to seeing everybody in next week's episode. So until then, thank you and bye-bye. Bye. See you.